Section 11 of The Vertical City. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. The Vertical City by Fanny Hurst. Section 12. Guilty. Part 2. The morning broke clear, and for Mrs. Jett, full of small reassurances. It was good to hear the clatter of milk deliveries, and the first bar of sunshine came in through the hand-embroidered window curtains like a smile, and she could smile back. Later she ventured down shamefacedly for the two cups of coffee, which she drank bravely, facing the inevitable potpourri of comment from this one and that one. "'That was a fine scare you gave us last night, Mrs. Jett.' "'I woke up stiff with fright, didn't I, Will? Gracious! That first yell was a curdler!' "'Just before Jeanette was born I used to have bad dreams, too, but nothing like that. My!' My mother had a friend whose sister-in-law walked in her sleep right out of a third-story window and was dashed to— Shh! It's natural, Mrs. Jett, don't you worry. She really tried not to, and after some subsequent and private reassurance from Mrs. Peeping and Mrs. Keller, went for her handsome ride with a pleasant anticipation of the park in red leaf, Mrs. Plush in a brocade cap and ball fringe sitting erect beside her. One day, in the presence of Mrs. Peeping, Mrs. Jett jumped to her feet with a violent shaking of her right hand, as if to dash off something that had crawled across its back. Oh, she cried, it flopped right on my hand, a minnow, ugh! A what? cried Mrs. Peeping, jumping to her feet, and her flesh seeming to crawl. A minnow, I mean a bug, a June bug. It was a bug, Mrs. Peeping. There ensued a mock search for the thing, the two women on all fours peering beneath the chairs. In that position they met levelly, eye to eye. Then, without more ado, rose, brushing their knees and reseating themselves. "'Maybe if you would read books you would feel better,' said Mrs. Peeping, scooping up a needleful of steel beads. "'I know a woman who made it her business to read all the poetry books she could lay hands on, and went to all the bandstand concerts in the park the whole time.' and now her daughter sings in the choir out in saginaw michigan i know some believe in that said mrs jett trying to force a smile through her pallor i must try it but the infinitesimal stitching kept her so busy it was inevitable though that in time henry should begin to shoulder more than a normal share of unease one evening she leaned across the little lamplit table between them as he sat reading in the Persian-designed dressing-gown, and said, as rapidly as her lips could form the dreadful repetition, "'The fish, the fish, the fish, the fish, the fish!' and then, almost impudently for her, disclaimed having said it. He urged her to visit her doctor, and she would not, and so, secretly, he did, and came away better satisfied, and with directions for keeping her diverted, which punctiliously he tried to observe." He began by committing sly acts of discretion on his own accord, was careful not to handle the fish, changed his suit now before coming home, behind a screen in his office, and, feeling foolish, went out and purchased a bottle of violet eau de cologne, which he rubbed into his palms, and for some inexplicable reason on his half-bald spot. Of course that was futile, because the indescribably and faintly rotten smell of the sea came through none the less and to Henry he was himself heinous with scent. One Sunday morning, as was his wont, 
Mr. Jett climbed into his dressing-gown and padded downstairs for the loan of little Jeanette Peeping, with whom he returned, the delicious nub of her Goldilocks head showing just above the blanket which enveloped her, eyes and all. He deposited her in bed beside Mrs. Jett, the little pink feet peeping out from her nightdress, and her baby teeth showing in a smile that Mr. Jett loved to pinch together with thumb and forefinger. "'Cover her up quick, Em. It's chilly this morning.' Quite without precedent, Jeanette puckered up to cry, holding herself rigidly to Mr. Jett's dressing-gown. "'Why, Jeanette, baby, don't you want to go to Auntie M?' "'No, no, no!' trying to ingratiate herself back into Mr. Jett's arms. "'Baby, you'll take cold. Come under the covers with Auntie M.' "'No, no, no! Take me back!' "'Oh, Jeanette, that isn't nice. What ails the child?' She's always so eager to come to me. Shame on Jeanette. Come, baby, to Auntie M? No, no, no! My mamma says you're crazy. Take me back. Take me. For a frozen moment, Henry regarded his wife above the glittering fluff of little girl curls. It seemed to him he could almost see her face become smaller, like a bit of ice under sun. Naughty little Jeanette, he said, shouldering her and carrying her down the stairs naughty little girl when he returned his wife was sitting locked in the attitude in which he had left her henry she whispered reaching out and closing her hand over his so that the nails bit in not that henry tell me not that why em he said sitting down and trembling i'm surprised at you listening to baby talk why em i'm surprised at you she leaned over shaking him by the shoulder I know, they're saying it about me. I'm not that, Henry. I swear I'm not that. Always protect me against their saying that, Henry. Not crazy. Not that. It's natural for me to feel queer at times, now. Every woman in this house who says that has had her nervous feelings. It's not quite so easy for me, as if I were a bit younger, that's all. The doctor said that. But nothing to worry about. Mrs. Peeping had Jeanette. "'Oh, Henry, promise me you'll always protect me against their saying that. "'I'm not that. I swear to you, Henry, not that.' "'I know you're not, Emmy. It's too horrible and too ridiculous to talk about. "'Chaw! Chaw!' "'You do know I'm not, don't you? Tell me again you do know.' "'I do, do. "'And you'll always protect me against anyone saying it. "'They'll believe you, Henry, not me.' Promise me to protect me against them, Henry. Promise to protect me against our little Anne Elizabeth ever thinking that of, of her mother. Why, Emmy, he said. Why, Emmy? I just promise a thousand times. And could not go on, working his mouth rather foolishly as if he had not teeth and were rubbering empty gums together. But through her hot gaze of tears, she saw and understood and satisfied rubbed her cheek against his arm the rest is cataclysmic returning home one evening in a nice glow from a january out of doors his moustache glistening with little frozen drops and his hands he never wore gloves unbending of cold mrs jett rose at her husband's entrance from her low chair beside the lamp well well he said exhaling heartily the scent of violet denying the pungency of fish and the pungency of fish denying the scent of violet. How's the busy bee this evening? 
For answer, Mrs. Jett met him with the crescendo yell of a gale sweeping around a chimney. Yah! Keep out, you! Fish! Fish! she cried, springing toward him. And in the struggle that ensued, the tubing wrenched off the gas lamp and plunged them into darkness. Fish! I'll fix you! Yah! Emmy, for God's sake, it's Henry! Em! Yah! I'll fix you! Fish! Fish! Two days later, Anne Elizabeth was born, beautiful but premature by two weeks. Emma Jett died, holding her tight against her newly rich breasts, for a few of the most precious and most fleeting moments of her life. All her absurd fears washed away, her free hand could lie without spasm in Henry's, and it was as if she found in her last words a secret euphony that delighted her. Anne Elizabeth! sweet beautiful anne elizabeth sweet beautiful later in his bewildered and almost ludicrous widowerhood tears would sometimes galump down on his daughter's face as henry rocked her of evenings and sunday mornings sweet beautiful came so absurdly from under his swiftly graying moustache but often when sherry was quite alone he would say it over and over again sweet beautiful Anne Elizabeth, sweet, beautiful, Anne Elizabeth. Of course, the years puttied in and healed and softened, until, for Henry, almost a Turner haze hung between him and some of the stark facts of Emma Jett's death, turping out horror, which is always the first to fade from memory, and leaving a dear sepia outline of the woman who had been his. At seventeen, Anne Elizabeth was the sun, the sky, the west wind, and the shimmer of spring, all gone into the making of her a rosebud off the stalk of his being. His way of putting it was, You're my all, Annie, closer to me than I am to myself. She hated the voweling of her name, and because she was so nimble with youth, could dance away from these moods of his rather than plumb them. I won't be Annie. Please, Daddy, I'm your Ann Elizabeth. Ann Elizabeth, then. My Ann Elizabeth. An inner rhythm in him echoing, Sweet, beautiful, sweet, beautiful. There was actually something of the lark about her. She awoke with a song, sometimes kneeling up in bed, with her pretty brown hair tousling down over her shoulders and chirruping softly to herself into the little bird's-eye maple dressing-table mirror before she flung her feet over the side of the bed. And then, innate little housekeeper that she was, it was to the preparing of breakfast with a song, her early morning full of antics, tiptoeing in to awaken her father to the tickle of a broom-straw, spreading his breakfast, piping hot, and then concealing herself behind a screen, that he might marvel at the magic of it. And once she put salt in his coffee, a fresh cup concealed behind the toast-rack, and knee to knee they rocked in merriment at his grimace. She loved thus to tease him, probably because he was so stolid that each new adventure came to him with something of a shock. He was forever being taken unawares, as if he could never become entirely accustomed to the wonder of her, and that delighted her. Even the obviousness of his slippers stuffed out with carrots could catch him napping. To her dance of glee behind him, he kept poking and poking to get into them, 
only the peck of her kiss upon his neck finally initiating him into the absurdity. There was a little apartment of five rooms, twenty minutes removed by subway from the fish store, her bedroom all pink and yellow maple, his, a kitchen, parlour, and dining-room worked out happily in white muslin curtains, spindle-legged parlour chairs, Henry's new-fangled chiffer-robe and bed with a fine depth of mattress, and a kitchen with eight shining pots above the sink, and a border of geese cut out to the snip of Anne's own scissors waddling across the wall. It was two and a half years since Mrs. Plush had died, and the boarders, as if spilled from an ark on rough seas, had struck out for diverse shores. The marvel to them now was that they had delayed so long. A home of our own, Anne. Pretty sweet, isn't it? Oh, Daddy, it is. You mustn't overdo, though, baby. Sometimes we're not so strong as we think we are. A little hired girl would be best. The fish business had more than held its own. But I love doing it alone, Dad. It, it's the next best thing to a home of my own. He looked startled into her dreaming eyes. Your own? Why, Annie, isn't this your own? She laid fingers against his eyes so that he could not see the pinkiness of her. You know what I mean, Daddy, my very own. At that timid phrasing of hers, Henry felt that his heart was actually strangling, as if someone were holding it back on its systolic swing like a caught pendulum. Why, Annie, he said, I never thought. But inevitably, and of course, it had happened. The young man's name was Willis, Fred E. Willis, already credit man in a large wholesale grocery firm, and two feet well on the road to advancement. A square-faced, clean-faced fellow, with a clean love of life and of Anne Elizabeth in his heart. Henry liked him. Anne Elizabeth loved him. And yet, what must have been a long smouldering flame of fear shot up through the very core of Henry's being, excoriating. Why, Anne Elizabeth, he kept repeating in his slow and always inarticulate manner, I, you, mine, I just never thought. She wound the softest of arms around his neck. I know, Daddy Darlums, and I'll never leave you. Never. Fred has promised we will always be together. We'll live right here with you, or you with us. Annie, he cried, you mustn't ever marry. I mean, leave Daddy, that way, anyway. You hear me? Your Daddy's own. Just his, by himself. Nobody is good enough for my girl. But Daddy, clouding up for tears, I thought you liked Fred so much. I do, but it's you I'm talking about. Nobody can have you. But I love him, Daddy. This is terrible. I love him. Oh, Anne, Anne. Daddy hasn't done right, perhaps, but he meant well. There are reasons why he wants to keep his little girl with him always, alone, his. But, Daddy, dear, I promise you we'll never let you be lonely. Why, I couldn't stand leaving you any more than you could... Not those reasons alone, Anne. Then what? You're so young, he tried to procrastinate. I'll be eighteen, a woman. All his faculties were cornered. You're so... Oh, I don't know, I... 
"'You haven't any reasons, Dad, except dear silly ones. "'You can't keep me a little girl all the time, dear. "'I love Fred. It's all planned. "'Don't ruin my life, Daddy. Don't ruin my life.' She was lovely in her tears, and surprisingly resolute in her mind, and he was more helpless than ever with her. "'Anne, you're not strong.' "'Strong?' she cried, flinging back her curls and out her chest. "'That is a fine excuse. I'm stronger than most. All youngsters have measles and scarlet fever. And Fred says his sister Lucille, out in Des Moines, had St. Vitus dance when she was eleven, just like I did.' I'm stronger than you are, Dad. I didn't get the flu, and you did. You're nervous, Annie. That's why I want always to keep you at home, quiet, with me. She sat back, her pretty eyes troubled up lakes. You mean the dreams and the scared feeling once in a while that I can't swallow? That's nothing. I know now why I was so frightened in my sleep the other night. I told Fred, and he said it was the peach Sunday on top of the crazy old movie we saw that evening. Why, Jeanette Peeping had to take a rest cure the year before she was married. Girls are always more nervous than fellows. Daddy, you... you frighten me when you look at me like that. I don't know what you mean. What do you mean? He was helpless and at bay, and took her in his arms and kissed her hair. I guess your old daddy is a jealous pig and can't bear to share his girl with anyone can't bear to to give her up you won't be giving up daddams i couldn't stand that either it'll be three of us then you'll see look up and smile at your aunt elizabeth smile now smile and of course he did it was typical of her that she should be the busiest of brides to be her complete little trousseau every piece down to the dishcloths monogrammed by her a e w Skilful with her needle and thrifty in her purchases, the outfit when completed might have represented twice the outlay that Henry expended on it. Then there were showers, linen, stocking, and even a tin one, gifts from her girlfriends, cup, face, bath, and guest towels, all the tremendous trifles and addenda that go to gladden the chattel-loving heart of a woman, a little secret society of her erstwhile school friends, presented her with a luncheon set, the Keller twins with a silver gravy boat, and Jeanette Peeping Truman, who occupied an apartment in the same building, spent as many as three afternoons a week with her, helping to piece out a really lovely tulip-designed quilt of pink and white sateen. Jeanette, said Anne Elizabeth one afternoon as the two of them sat in a frothy litter of the pink and white scraps, how did you feel that time when you had the nerve, the breakdown? Jeanette, pretty after a high cheekboned fashion, and her still bright hair worn coronet fashion about her head, bit off a thread with sharp white teeth, only too eager to reminisce her ills. I was just about gone, that's what I was. Let anybody so much as look at me twice and pop, I'd want to cry about it. And... For six weeks I didn't even have enough interest to ask after Truman, who was courting me then. Oh, it was no fun, I can tell you, that nervous breakdown of mine. What else? Isn't that enough? Did it, was it, was it ever hard to swallow, Jeanette? To swallow? Yes, I mean, did you ever dream or, or think or feel so frightened you couldn't swallow? 
I felt lots of ways, but that wasn't one of them. Swallow? Who ever heard of not swallowing? But didn't you ever dream, Jeanette, terrible things? Such terrible things, and get to thinking and couldn't stop yourself? Silly, ghostly things? Jeanette put down her sewing. Anne, are you quizzing me about your mother? My mother? Why my mother? Jeanette, what do you mean? Why do you ask me a thing like that? What has my mother got to do with it? Jeanette! Conscious that she had erred, Jeanette veered carefully back. Why, nothing. Only I remember Mamma telling me when I was just a kitty how your mamma used to to imagine all sorts of things just to pass the time away while she embroidered the loveliest pieces you're like her mamma used to say a handy little body poor mamma to think she had to be taken before truman junior was born ah me that evening before fred came for his two hours with her in the little parlour anne rid of her checked apron and her crisp pink frock saved from the grease of frying sparks flew in from a ring at the doorbell with a good-sized special delivery box from a silversmith. Untying it with eager, fumbling fingers, her father laying aside his newspaper to venture three guesses as to its contents. Another one of those syrup pitchers. Oh, dear, plucking the twine, I hope not. Some more nut-picks. Daddy, stop calamity howling. Here's the card. Des Moines, Iowa. From Lucille Willis with love to her new sister isn't that the sweetest it's something with a pearl handle i know another one of those pie spade things wrong wrong it's two pieces oh it was a fish set of silver and mother-of-pearl a large bold spoon and a sort of neptune's fork set up in a white sateen bed say now that is neat said henry appraising each piece with a show of critical appreciation not really his. All this spread of the goo-gaws of approaching nuptials seemed meaningless to him, bored him. Butter-knives, berry-spoons, an embarrassment of nut-picks and silver pitchers, a sliver of silver paper-cutter with a hilt and a dog's-head handle. And now, for Fred's delectation this evening, the newly added fish-set, so appropriately inscribed from his sister. Tilting it against the lamp in the place of honour, Anne Elizabeth turned away suddenly, looking up at her father in a sudden dumb panic of which he knew nothing, her two hands at her fair, bare throat. It was so hard again to swallow, impossible. But finally, as was always the case, she did swallow with a great surge of relief. A little later, seated on her father's knee and plucking at his tie, in a futile fashion that he loved, she asked him, Daddy, about mother. They seldom talked of her, but always during these rare moments a beautiful mood shaped itself between them. It was as if the mere breath of his daughter's sweetly-lipped use of mother swayed the bittersweet memory of the woman he carried so faithfully in the cradle of his heart. Yes, baby about mother daddy still fingering at the tie was mother was everything all right with her up to the very end i mean no nerve n no pain just all of a sudden the end quietly or have you told me that just to spare me she could feel him stiffen but when his voice came it was even 
Why, Anne, what a question. Haven't I told you so often how Mother just peacefully passed on, holding a little pink you? Sweet beautiful. His heart was tolling through a sense of panic. Sweet beautiful. I know, Daddy, but before, wasn't there any nerve, any sickness? No, he said rather harshly for him. No, no, what put such ideas into your head? You see, he was shielding Emma way back there, and a typhoon of her words was raging through his head. Oh, Henry, protect me against anyone ever saying that. Promise me. And now, with no sense of his terrible ruthlessness, he was protecting her with her own daughter. Then, Daddy, just one more thing, and her underlip caught while she waited for answer. There's no other reason except your own dear silly one of loneliness why you keep wanting me to put off my marriage? No, baby, he said finally, his words with no more depth than if his body were a hollow gourd. What else could there be? Immediately, and with all the resilience of youth, she was her happy self again, kissing him through his moustache and on his now frankly bald head, which gave off the incongruous odour of violet eau de cologne. "'Old dude, Daddy!' she cried, and wanted to kiss his hands, which he held suddenly very still and far from her reach. Then the bell rang again, and Fred Willis arrived. All the evening, long after Henry lay on his deep-mattressed bed, staring, the little apartment trilled to her laughter, and the basso of Fred's. A few weeks later there occurred a strike of the delivery men and truck drivers of the city, and Henry, especially hard hit because of the perishable nature of his product, worked early and late, oftentimes loading the wagons himself and riding alongside of the precariously driving scab. Frequently he was as much as an hour or two late to dinner, and upon one or two occasions had tiptoed out of the house before the usual hour when Anne opened her eyes to the consciousness of his breakfast to be prepared. They were trying days, the scheme of his universe broken into, and Henry thrived on routine. The third week of the strike there were street riots, some of them directly in front of the fish store, and Henry came home after a day of the unaccustomed labour of loading and unloading hampers of fish, really quite shaken. When he arrived, Anne Elizabeth was cutting around the scalloped edge of a doily with embroidery scissors. The litter of cut glass and silver things out on the table, and throwing up quite a brilliance under the electric lamp, and from the kitchen the slow sizzle of waiting chops. Whew, he said as he entered, both from the whiff he emanated as he shook out of his overcoat, and from a great sense of his weariness. Loading the hampers, you understand. Whew! Anne Elizabeth started violently, first at the whiff which preceded him, and at his approach into the room, then sat forward, her head closing into the arm of the chair, body thrust forward, and her eyes widening like two flowers opening. Then she rose slowly and slyly, and edged behind the table, her two hands up about her throat. "'Don't you come in here,' she said, lowly and evenly. "'I know you, but I'm not afraid. I'm only afraid of you at night, but not by light. You let me swallow you here. Get out! Get out!' Rooted, Henry stood. 
"'Why, Annie,' he said in the soothing voice from out of his long ago, "'Annie, it's Daddy!' "'No, you don't!' she cried, springing back as he took the step forward. "'My Daddy'll kill you if he finds you here. "'He'll slit you up from your tail right up to your gill. "'He knows how. "'I'm going to tell him and Fred on you. "'You won't let me swallow. "'You're slippery. "'I can't stand it. "'Don't you come near me. "'Don't!' "'Annie!' he cried. "'Good God! "'Annie, it's Daddy who loves you!' "'Poor Henry!' Her voice was still under a whisper, and in his agony he committed the error of rushing at her. "'Annie, it's Daddy! See, your own dear Daddy!' But she was too quick, her head thrown back so that the neck muscles strained out like an outraged deer's, cornered in the hunt, and her eyes rolled up, Anne felt for and grasped the paper-knife off the trinket-littered table. "'Don't you touch me! Slit you up from tail to your gills!' "'Annie, it's Daddy! Papa! For God's sake, look at Daddy! Anne! God!' and caught her wrist in the very act of its plumb-line rush for his heart. He was sweating in his struggle with her, and most of all her strength appalled him. She was so little for her terrible, unaccountable power. "'Don't touch me! You can't! You haven't any arms! Horrible gills!' She was talking as she struggled, still under the hoarse and frantic whisper, but her breath coming in long sloughs. "'Slit you up from tail to gills! "'Annie! Annie!' Still obsessed by his anguished desire to reassure her with the normality of his touch. "'See, Annie, it's Daddy! Anne Elizabeth's Daddy!' With a flash her arm and the glint of the paper-cutter eluded him again and again, but finally he caught her by the waist, struggling in his dreadful mistake to calm her down into the chair again. "'Now I've got you, darling. Now sit down.' "'No, you haven't,' she said, a sort of wild joy coming out in her whisper, and cunningly twisting the upper half of her body back from his, the hand still held high. "'You'll never get me, you fish!' and plunged with her high hand in a straight line down into her throat. It was only when the coroner withdrew the sliver of paper knife from its whiteness that, coagulated, the dead and waiting blood began to ooze. "'Do you,' intoned the judge for the third and slightly more impatient time, Plead guilty or not guilty to the charge of murder against you. This time the lips of the prisoner's wound of a mouth moved stiffly together. Guilty. End of Guilty. <laughs>